All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Difficult Conversations by Supply the Why. As always, I'm super excited about tonight's show. We have an unbelievable guest. So tonight we are honored to be joined by Chuck Tachara. So Chuck is one of the Massachusetts' biggest use of force defensive tactics trainer. If you have gone through defensive tactics in the last 15 years, you have certainly come across Chuck in one of your classes. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get Chuck up on the street on the screen. Chuck, how you doing, my man? Evening, brother. How are you? I'm doing very well. So, Chuck, I was telling everybody that um, if anybody who's gone through use of force defensive tactics classes in Massachusetts over the last 15 years must have come across you at some point. So I met you back in 2006 when I went to my first full-time academy uh, in Lowell. And that was um, those were those were some dog days back then, back in the middle of June and July, out there by the Merrimack River, and it was the old rules back then. You could do a lot more with with recruit classes than you can now. So, how many how many people have you? How many cops have you trained, roughly? Um, I would say I've been at it probably twenty four years in Mass, and then I I do some teaching you know, internationally. So I, I'd say probably seven. I'd say over ten thousand cops. I've trained totally and probably 7,000 just in Massachusetts alone. And then I've trained, uh, you know, across the country down in Texas, Washington, DC, Chicago. And the last few years I've had the privilege to go to, uh, train some officers from Switzerland. I didn't get to go to Switzerland. I'd like to, but, uh, train some officers from Switzerland, Canada, um, the UK. So, and, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty rewarding experience. Cops are cops everywhere. So it's been pretty good. So that's great. So you've been, you've been just, Endeavor of yours has brought you all over the world to spread your knowledge. Yes, sir. That's and that's, learn and learn. I learn every time out. Absolutely, we learn every time we're out. So, big changes in Massachusetts: police reform bill. Yes, sir. Exactly. All right. A lot going on. So, yes. So it's not all doom and gloom, though. Like we talked about uh, in the backstage portion. So let's talk about some of the good things. Or some of the things that, at least here in Massachusetts, and I will also speak for New Hampshire because I worked up there as well for a little while, some of the things that we're already doing, I would say most of the bill is things that we're already doing. So one of the things that jumped out to me was writing a comprehensive report if you use force. So talk to us a little bit about that and tell us the importance of, of writing a comprehensive report. Yeah, the, the report writing's always been, you know, it, and it's, like you say, the job, the job is different than it used to be. So when I, when I became a police officer, um, we used to handwrite the handwrite them in the cruiser. That's how long it was ago. But you would try, you were told everything was keep everything short and sweet. Don't give the attorneys too much information. And you kind of answer the five who, what, when, where, how, and, and that type of stuff. But now it's come full circle, which is, you know, now, now they want a full comprehensive use of force report, which is, which is, which is, it should be. I think we're better than we were 25, 30 years ago because you know, when you go to court or you go to a deposition or you go to federal court or you go to trial, that that report is your story. That's where you need to tell a compelling story. And, you know, you're being judged by a judge or a jury that they're not police officers. So you need to tell that story, a compelling story as to what was going on, what you knew, what you thought, what you felt. And that stuff is important. So the use of force report writing aspect is, is extremely important. And, you know, we, we do a lot of good things. Um and we do some things we could need to get better at. And I think still moving ahead, one of those, one of those having a good comprehensive report writing guide is, is really important. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, as you know, I also instruct defensive tactics. And when I teach, one of the things I like to describe the use of force report is like a movie script. You want to make right. it so when the person reading that report, I want to feel like I'm there with you. Like I'm seeing there, like I'm standing there with you, like a Quentin Tarantino movie. Where you know you have somebody kind of narrating a scene, and they, and that person's narrating you through the scene, and I can feel what you're feeling, smell what you're smelling, hear what you're hearing, the whole nine. So I can put myself uh, in your shoes as best as possible. Yeah, same. We and me and you teach in different parts of the state, and I I have the same same opinion. I and I same lines. I would say think of it like the paint by number. Probably showing my age with the paint by numbers, but in the paint by number, you have to fill in everything. You know, everything that was going on, everything that you were feeling. So you do it like a paint by number, because if you leave holes, then other people's biases come into play and then they try to figure out the story. So you need to tell them the story and be truthful and be honest and um, be transparent about what happened and why you did what you did. And so uh, very important. But we've I always done that, I thought. I, I think so, too. 
another thing that the bill uh, is now mandating is something that we've been doing for a long time is a duty to intervene. So talk to us a little bit about that, because this is stuff that you were talking about when I had you back in 2006. So this isn't new. Yeah. So, it's you know, it's easy when this when the police reform comes out, it's, it's easy for everybody to, to you know, your, your first initial reaction is that, you know, the word reform automatically, it sounds like punishment, you know, so automatically people get nervous and it's and I don't run around thinking the sky is falling. I don't think it's true at all, because when this came out, I'm like, well, I, I do. I am biased for Massachusetts and, and cops in the one because I think cops up here are educated. I think they're smart. I think they care. I think they're passionate about the job. But um, when, when these things came out, I, I'm i like, we already do that. We already do this. We already do this. So what, one of the things that came out was this duty to intervene You know, after the Minneapolis incident. And I'm like, that's not a big deal. We've been teaching this, I would say, at least seven to 10 years. There's a case, Commonwealth versus Adams in Massachusetts. We try to pull relevant case law, you know, clearly established case law to teach. And, you know, it's it's changing. When a new law comes out, we think we should teach and we teach the students about it. But that duty to intervene, that was a case that involved, um, uh, you know, a car chase and the end of a car chase, it turned into an excessive force. And, you know, the gist of that case was they thought it was, you know, the, the judge came out and said on Commonwealth versus Adams, there's, there's no innocent bystanders and you have a duty in this state to intervene. So we have been teaching Commonwealth versus Adams for at least seven years, which if you see a police officer using excessive force, you are you are bound by the law and by your ethics and moral compass to intervene. So on that note, this obviously is a close in close relation to the whole loss of qualified immunity. Correct. There is a lot of misinformation out there about what qualified immunity is and what it is not. So one of the things that I like to tell people is qualified immunity does not shield you from a criminal act. So it's right. just like it's always been. If I go out and I, and I go to a store and I and I take a whole bunch of Twix and I stuff it in my coat and I walk out, well, that's still larceny. Qualified immunity is not going to protect me from that. If somebody, if I say, give me your license and registration, somebody, they tell me no, and I break their window with my baton and I bludgeon them with it, qualified immunity is not going to protect me from that. That is still a criminal act. So talk a little bit about how um, the same with the qualified immunity, a lot of people out there particularly all of our civilian viewers. Can you educate them a little bit more on qualified immunity? So I'm, I'm not an attorney. I'm not that smart. I'm super cute. Not that smart. But so I'm not I'm not an attorney. But I'll tell you what I, I do know from qualified immunity. And I've, 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 you know, I've testified in, in district court, superior court in, in the United States district court as an expert witness. And, and I'll tell you right now that qualified immunity does not protect bad cops. And good cops don't like bad cops. It does not protect does not protect bad cops because qualified immunity is, you know, is, is, is a two pronged test. You know, it, it gives, provides government protection, you know, when you're doing your job and they would have this, there's two things. It would have to be a, a constitutional violation, you know, a, a civil rights violation, excessive force coupled with the fact that you violated clearly established case law. So what happens in an excessive force case, if an officer uses excessive force, he doesn't, he is not, he does not get qualified immunity because there would be an allegation, whether it be true or false, it would be an allegation of excessive force, civil rights violation, coupled with violating clearly established case law. And the law is Graham versus Connor. And that's the United States Supreme Court decision that says your use of force has to be objectively reasonable. So if you do commit excessive force, you're not going to get qualified immunity. You know, it's similar to like the Tennessee versus Gardner case. If you use deadly force on a fleeing felon, you're not going to be shielded by that because there's guidelines that the Tennessee versus Gardner lays out of when a police officer can use deadly force on a fleeing felon. So I, it, that uh, it kind of is a fallacy that officers are hiding behind qualified immunity. Okay, if if a cop commits excessive force, then he's going he's going to be held accountable. Well said. You know it, it's. You know, it's, it's it's just crazy. Some of the things, some of the sky has fallen mentality that you see out there from from the public, and and the biggest thing, probably the most hurtful thing to those of us that have been that are good cops, those of us that are working cops, those of us that teach other cops the right way to apply force, is we're not seeing these things happening in Massachusetts. We're being like all of this is being pushed by things that are happening a thousand plus miles away from here, so. 
what it's, what happens to you? Like, I'm sure like on the street, you must have friends that, that aren't police officers that see it a different way. How are you explaining this to them and getting them to understand the pride in which we take in, in, in training people here in Massachusetts? Yeah, it's, you know, this year has probably taken more out of me than, um, than any other year. Just, just, just mentally, you know, like you say, you put, you put most cops I know sign on for this job, you know, protection of life, preservation of life, you know, you know, human life is important and and we defend life. And that's, that's why most cops took this job, knowing that you're probably going to end up divorced, you know, live a, live a short lifespan, work nights, work holidays, get punched, spit on, kicked. And we still, we still do this job because it's in our blood. And then to be told now over the last 10 months, 11 months that we're doing it wrong, we need to have reform and we need to fix this. And you just, I take a lot of pride in the fact that, you know, we teach use of force to be colorblind in our application of force. And I, I, do, I do think we do the right thing. And we absolutely have bad cops. I mean, we're not perfect, but in, in Massachusetts, we get, um, and, and, you know, I, I pay attention to what goes on in the country. We get a good amount of training. Do I think we get enough training? I, I, I don't. I think we can always use more training. And I think most cops will tell you we could use more training. And I'll just give you a little caveat for, for all the things that we're asked to do these days. Um, and this is no knock on hairdressers. Okay. But it's 800 hours. It's 800 hours. I believe don't jump on me. I believe it's 800 hours to be a hairdresser. It's a thousand hours, a thousand hours to be a tech at PetSmart. So a thousand hours, 800 for hairdresser, a thousand hours to be a, to clip dogs, toenails, and we get 800 to be a police officer. So I think we can always get more training. And I think most police officers would take more training. I, I- Absolutely. I think that, you know, I, I've talked to other friends of mine, people that, that are of the same mindset of us, is that the academy should be longer, but it needs to be revamped in that there should be a lot more scenario-based training. There should be more realistically based applications of defensive tactics as opposed to, you know, statically standing there and throwing a punch back and forth. You know, like there should be more stress-based, stress-induced training. Right. What I mean, I know that you'd be all over that. I mean, Lord knows you uh you pr- you placed a little bit of stress on us back in the day. Um, so I know. Yeah, you know we're hope, like you say, it's it's, it's ever changing. We're you know we're finally learning that PowerPoints aren't always the way the best way to train cops. And, and the other part, we're also that you have to understand is we're getting a different breed of cat in the police academy. Okay, like we used to mostly get captain of the football team, like and and athletic type kids, and it's not always that. And so sometimes. Uh, I, I, I don't want to speak out of turn, but it's almost like, you know, we, we're getting, you're training somebody to be a police officer and comfortable with stress and, and, and um, conflict and, and physical altercations. And, you know, if when we were kids growing up, you were thrown, you, you would you'd eat a, a handful of Lucky Charms and a, and a can of Mountain Dew and you'd be outside. We went to this mystical, magical place called Outside. <laughs> And you came home when the streetlights came on. We all had to be home at the same time. And, you know, you, you fought with your friends and you had fights in school and, and, and we drank out of a garden hose and everything else. So it's just a different breed. So now with with social, with, with uh, everybody being on the electronics, you know, we're getting a kid in the academy and we have a short amount of time to train him. And he's somebody that doesn't have the, not always, we get some great young, talented cops. I'm not saying that we don't, but it's just a different, they're raised differently. So we have to train them differently. And I think that if they haven't, learned about conflict resolution growing up and stress, we have to try to induce them. And you can't really do that in a classroom. So I think the, uh, I think moving ahead, we need to still continue to integrate some of that scenario-based training. Uh, absolutely. I mean, to your point, you know, in our generation, it was completely different than how, than how these kids are growing up now. For example, I tell my kids to go outside. That is punishment. <laughs> Whereas when we were kids, it was punishment you you couldn't go outside. That's how you. That's how they punish you. You had to you know sit in your window and watch all your friends ride bikes, things like this, go out and play. Uh, another thing that's changes and and people don't always love this when I say it, but I you know I don't I don't really care. Is I personally believe that the world was a better place where you had to be conscious of the fact that your words might get you punched dead in your face. You know, it changed the whole thing. You had to know who you were talking to, and you had to be conscious of that. That there were consequences if you said. And did things, and I think that it made, um, I think it made up for a more well-rounded person. Again, I'm not, I'm not championing for bullying or anything like that. I'm not talking about that, 
but you couldn't just sit behind a keyboard and just write all this explosive, uh, threatening type language without consequence back then. At some point, you knew that you were going to have to ante up. And I think that, that you, you saw that more with, with recruits. Again, back when I went through 15 years ago, you saw people that seemed to be a little more uh, skilled, we'll say, with uh, right. defensive tactics stuff than you do now. Yeah. And some of these, you know, everybody thinks like self-defense and defensive tactics, training officer survival training is all about fighting. It's, it's, it's not really. It's a thinking man's game. And it's so much of it comes down to your communication skills and how you look, how you carry yourself, how you present yourself and how you talk to people. It's, it, it, it might not be per se in the use of force continuum, but it absolutely is, is important that, you know, that, 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 that we understand how important communication is in the use of force game. And so if, if, if officers aren't getting that somewhere else and we have to try to find a way to inoculate that and inoculate that into the training. All right. Fair enough. So I think this would be a perfect time to show um, a use of force video that I have queued up here. It's going to show, kind of the reaction that we're having now where is you have a lot more hesitation in cops than you did once before because, let's face it, you have to worry about physical survival in this job. You have to worry about emotional survival in this job. And now more than ever, you have to worry about financial survival on this job, you know, like getting sued and, and, and coming out on the right end of that. So sure. that is, you know, when you have those those three gigantic issues to worry about, it, it could cause hesitation at even the most you know, outgoing police officer. So let's take a look at this video and then we'll discuss it afterwards. So stand by. Okay. All right. So, talk to me. Chuck, how do you feel about that video and how do you feel about the 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 candid comment from that from that female officer about her hesitation to use force? Yeah, you know, I, well, I think she's I think she's being brutally honest. Um you just see how fast these these things can escalate, you know, I, 
I, I, I'm not sure of uh, all the facts of the case, whether or not she was justified in using force, but you absolutely see um, that hesitation to use force, which is one of the, which is one of the fears on some of this police reform. Um, you know, at, at the end of the day, I think, uh, I think, you know, I think change is always good. I think we all accept the fact that uh, we can be better, but society can be better as well. Uh, so we look at the areas we can fix and, and, and most police officers are, are for change, but where we have to be careful is now um, you have police officers that will be hesitate, hesitating to use force. And that could be deadly for the officer and it could be deadly for civilians as well. So some of these, you know, some of these um, things that got put out that we should, you know, we should, we should always give a warning before we use force and exhaust all other means before you use deadly force. They sound really, really good on paper, but that's not really how it works on the street. That's the problem is, is, and you don't, you, you don't want to have police officers out there afraid to do their job. Uh, you don't want to be officers out there. You want good proactive police officers that believe in the job that are out there protecting the public and, and doing the job. And, um, Police officers are afraid to do their job because they're afraid of losing their families or their house or getting fired or going to jail. That can that can cause uh, officer safety issues, but it, it also changes a different style in policing. You know, you, you don't want officers that are reactive in nature. You can see that's happening, and you can see the crime rate in some of the big cities where they've had changes in policies. And if the officers feel handcuffed, then that can be a problem. So I think in Massachusetts, hopefully, with some of this reform bill we just get everybody on the same page we talk out some of the details and police officers are still able to go out there and do the job the way they've been doing it for for years uh, in a good way i i couldn't agree with you more and we have a there's a perfect timing for this comment right here you know karen says the situation in weymouth with um sergeant chesna god rest his soul you know that's um is a perfect example and of how something like a rock which in itself isn't necessarily a, a you know, it's not a, it's not a necessarily a, de a deadly weapon or dangerous weapon, but when it's used in a certain way, you never know, you know, like, like if someone's holding a rock and you end up shooting them or hurting them or injuring them, it, what's going to be, are you going to do? They're going to turn it into, Oh, the guy was just holding a rock. And you know, like the police just went and they bludgeoned them. They're going to make it seem like we just walk around and say, you there kind sir. And then we start bludgeoning people. That's not the way it works. We are a we our actions are a direct result of what the subject we're dealing with dictates. Would right. you agree with that? Yeah, you know, no, 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 no cop in 2020 or 21, no cop comes to work and certainly wants to take somebody's life. Okay. And certainly most police officers would would seek a peace, peaceful resolution. Nobody wants to go to work and use force. And it really, you know, police use of force is dictated by standards and guidelines. And the standards are clearly established case law. This is this is force. Force is defined as the amount of effort required by police to compel compliance from an unwilling individual. And then we talk about when can a police officer use force? Self-defense, defense of another, affecting the rest of a resisting person, um, prevent somebody from harming themselves, prevent escape. So then, it, you know, the law dictates when we can use force. And then it dictates our, our use of force has to be objectively reasonable. So those are the those are the standards and then guidelines were guided by a use of force model in this state and we're guided by department policy and procedure. So um, it's laid out, you know, when we can use force and the amount of force that we can use. Absolutely. So Chuck, as I'm sure you can imagine, I'm sure you've seen the chat is lighting up. So let's hit, let's hit a, a question from Melissa. She wants to know what the extent of communications training is for officers in Massachusetts. So it, it, so it was it used to be separated before. So like uh, you would have a you would have a block on you know use of force and defensive tactics that deals with physical stuff, and then they would have a section on uh, effective communication slash conflict conflict resolution. But now they've really over the last few years, and the, and this is even prior to 2020, they've changed. Uh, we've added commu effective communications into actual use of force. So we add a new section in there. And then they get a, another section on um, dealing with the mentally ill, uh, people with mental illness, and it focuses on, again, communications. And then there's another block on dealing with uh, autism and special circumstances. And then there's another section on that, on how to deal with communication. So it's gone from probably a, a two-hour block. I can actually give you the exact numbers. Hang on one second. Mm -hmm. And while you're looking that up, let me also add another log on the fire. You can all – I just went to uh, Excited Delirium. Train the trainer. So that's another 
means of communication, identifying, identifying excited delirium or agitated chaotic events is, is what they call them. There's verbal judo classes all over the all over the country. There's verbal judo classes, so the training is there and the training is um, is being mandated, especially here in Massachusetts, like we were saying. So yeah. good question, Melissa. To, to answer, answer and just to finish your question, uh, Melissa. So it's it's basically uh, just a separate communications class. They'll get they'll get two days of classroom and one day of um, scenario based training. So mm -hmm. it's basically three days, and then we'll try to add a day into some of the other disciplines when we can. But I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Chuck said it earlier. We could always use more. No one's going to tell you that, you know, that, that we've done enough and we're just going to stand pat. We'll, we'll, we'll take more if people, if, 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 if people are willing to fund it because, you know, nobody does this stuff for love. These classes cost money. So in order to go to these classes, uh, we, we need money because we all know the first thing that goes, and I'm just going to go ahead and bring it up before someone else does, if we're defunded, the first thing that's going to go is training. That is the first thing in every budget that gets cut. Correct. So you can't have it both ways, folks. You just can't. You know, you want cops to be better trained and to have more of this and more of that. Well, you, someone's got to pony up the dough. You know, you can't slash budgets and defund and then expect departments to give people more training and more resources. All right. So we got to figure out what we uh, what we want to do. All right. So from there, we have another one where is. Coach Erica wants to know, many officers don't de-escalate, although most do. Or many officers don't de-escalate, although most do. So I'm not sure how that works. It's saying many don't, but most do. Uh, we have to stop minimizing foolish and dangerous behavior. So um, Coach Erica, first of all, this is the first time I've seen you on the show, so welcome to Supply the Why. Uh, I am not sure where you live, but I can tell you here where we are in the Northeast region of the country, uh, de-escalation is something that happens all the time. And that is something we're going to get into, Chuck. Why don't we actually, why don't we address that too? So now one of the new things in the police reform bill is that we are mandated to attempt de-escalation before using force. So that is something that I can tell you for sure has been happening again, at least in, since 2006 when I had you, and certainly before that, where you come on, if you tell somebody, drop the knife, or if you tell somebody, show me your hands, that's de-escalation. Like you're trying to keep them from doing something that's going to make the situation worse. Chuck, what are your feelings on that? Yeah, so uh, Coach Erica makes a couple of good good points. So, and I'll address it from a couple of ways on the on the um as far as uh, on the de-escalation stuff. So we we've always we've always taught that you know this is this is when you can use force, but just because you're justified to use force doesn't mean that you have to, and you should try to seek a peaceful resolution first. So the thing about de-escalation is it's it's very, it can be subjective. I agree. We are, we're all looking for a peaceful resolution, but the de-escalation, even to police officers, police officers hear the word de-escalation. They're like, oh, here we go. And, and it's not a bad word. It's just, I think that we can, it's very subjective. So sometimes police have to actually escalate in order to de-escalate. So if I get that call for a person that's on a, a section 12 psych eval and I get there and he's, 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 he's on his front lawn with a knife. And, and I draw my firearm. I'm not. I'm not drawing my firearm to escalate. I'm not drawing my firearm because I want to shoot that person. I'm drawing it in order to de-escalate the situation. If somebody's combative and you you draw out your taser, you're not trying to escalate it. You're, so that might not be seen as de-escalation. But drawing a taser and asking somebody to comply, then um, and and, and proning them down on the ground, that is actually de-escalation. But yeah, it, it's they're gonna um. There's different levels of de-escalation, but I think that uh. You know, moving ahead, we we've always taught it, we've always trained it, but now in in 2021, we're going to have to do more of it. So we just have to, with law enforcement, in my opinion, it's all about tempo. So sometimes you have to put your foot on the gas, and you can't de-escalate. So de-escalation gets sometimes you know it gets misunderstood that it's some form of I, I used to call it verbal judo or like some kind of word wizardry. There's nothing. There's no it's some that. You have to have some um, cooperation to de-escalate the situation. So it's a dance. I, think, I agree with yes. you. It's a dance. It takes two people to de-escalate. Yes. And we can get we can get better at our verbal skills. I, I do agree with that. And and coach made a point on foolish behavior. That's something else that I, I'll tell you as a as a police officer, an area that we can improve on. So sometimes we have to slow things down a little bit. And um what we what we teach in Massachusetts, and it's not it's not even according to law, is 
use of force has to be judged. We also use totality of the circumstances, but we also have to use good tactics leading up to the use of force. So what we teach over here is that you make good decisions leading up to it because you could have a use of force that's reasonable and appropriate and within policy. However, the officer used made really bad decisions and really bad tactics, and that forced it into use of force. So even though that's not according to the law, I think, Dean, we do a really good job at that of teaching that you have to use good tactics up to it because if you're using good tactics, it, it might amount to no use of force and vice versa. If you're using bad tactics, you can escalate the situation. So we try to include both of that in, but she, she makes a good point. I understand what she's talking about. I agree. You know, we have to be conscious of the fact more than ever that bad tactics creating a use of force is problematic. You know, we've seen cases like that across the country uh, where, you know, maybe an officer's a little, a little overzealous and maybe somebody yeah. moving a little bit faster than they need to. And next thing you know, they're in a situation where the only way out of it is to use um, a very high level of force. And there's no yeah. coming back from that once you do. So that's something, again, here in Massachusetts, that's something that we drill. We drill in all of our classes with new recruits and with veteran police officers as well. So we, go ahead. So moving, moving ahead again, one, something that we can definitely be better at. And I think it's, it's introducing these, you know, one thing that we have as police officers that cops 30 years ago didn't have is the use of video. So, you know, you can show these videos in roll call or at work and do additional training just by using the computer. And I think that you look at these videos and before I, I, we would always say that's a good use of force or a bad use of force. And that was the standard. Is it good or bad? And, and now we're kind of trying to analyze and go, okay, is it reasonable and justified? Was it not reasonable and justified? Or was it justified and reasonable, but avoidable? So that's what we're trying to get better at is the avoidable. So even the use of force is good. Is there things the officer could have done to uh, maybe mitigate the need to use a higher level of force? So I think we have to just look at the honestly uh, across the board and, and some of those things we can do better. All right. Fair enough. So we've talked about a lot of the good. Let's talk about some of the ugly. So one mm. of the things when I was going through, um, you know, attorney chefs and attorney uh, Justin Hanrahan's notes on this bill was de-escalation is mentioned a lot. But here's the issue I have. So this, this is all going to be judged. So, you know, they're trying to institute, folks, if you're not familiar with this, they're trying to institute a post, which is Peace Officer Standards and Training. They're trying to institute that in Massachusetts to be the governing body over police to make sure to see if people should be certified or lose their certification. So this post is going to mandate that you use de-escalation. But here's the problem. It doesn't define what an act of de-escalation is. It's completely arbitrary. So it could be. So if Chuck is one investigator and I'm another investigator, we could have two different thoughts as to what constitutes an act of de-escalation. That for me is problematic. Secondly, it looks like they want to roll this out. And there's no training that I, that I've seen. There's no, there's no talk of we're going to have, everybody's going to get trained on this and then we're going to go. It seems like it's just going to, it, once it's, you know, once it's ready to roll out, it's just going to be rolled out and not going to be any training. So Chuck, talk to, talk to me about that. Do you find that as problematic as I do? So, yeah. So the, the, the police reform bill and you know, like there's some things I like about posts. I like the standardization of police work and training. And there's some things I like about it. And there's some things that I don't like about it, but what the bill, what I can see is it's just for now uh, where, where people are kind of uptight about it is the bill is 88 pages and it's full of um, contradictions and confusion. So the, the first thing before they roll this out and the, the, as far as I'm concerned, I think the most of the use of force stuff, except for like chokes and the immediate stuff is going to roll out July 1st. So we've been meeting with uh, the training council and EOPS to try to, to try to get um, some verbiage in there. And first thing they have to do is come up with these definitions. Like someone just asked about the definition of de-escalation. We need to define what imminent harm is and what de-escalation is. So there's still some work to be done um, for, you, for moving ahead. But yeah, as of right now, there's just there's just a lot of confusion out there, and there's there's some direct contradictions as to as to what's in there, and it's you know with uh, officers are worried that they're going to be judged by it's a, it's a unique profession to begin with. I mean, if 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 you went down there, you're a bright guy, but if you went up to the Dana Farber Institute and you started telling the doctors how to cure cancer, they would ask you, well, what's what's your level of training? Where are you getting? They would, and if you said none, they would think you're a crazy person. 
you know, if I went down to NASA and started telling them how to build rockets, they would they would ask me my training experience to build rockets. I'm not qualified for that, but in police work, everybody's allowed to tell us with no training experience to, to how the job should be done. So it's uh that that can be that can be difficult, and that's where officers are getting nervous that they're going to be judged. As far as I know, if if a lawyer is going to be disbarred, it's there there'll be an investigation, but it's going to be decided by people with the law background. If a Correct. doctor is going to have his medical license pulled, it's going to be people in the medical field. But we're going to have our our police officer license pulled by, um, I, I guess, people that are police officers, or maybe two or three people on the board. But that's where the uh, that's where the danger comes into play. I think that's extremely dangerous. I would be more willing to be on board with this if I if they were transparent. I'm going to use the word transparent, but I'm going to use it against other people instead of just police. If they were transparent as to what the decision making process is, what are the qualifications of the people that are going to be part of this post, and Give us some standardized definitions. Give us some standardized definitions. It can't be the type of thing where, again, Chuck, you have your definition of de-escalation. I have my definition of de-escalation. I guarantee you if they put us in separate rooms and said write out your definitions that we're going to have different definitions. It's, it's impossible not to. So they need to They need to definitely do a little more work, polish it up, and, again, I know this is going to sound crazy, Invite police officers into the decision-making process. Let us be part of the process here. Communicate with us. Communicate with the trainers. Communicate with those of us that are that have gone to specialized trainings. You know, we we have some value here. You know, this is you know we this reflects on us too. If there's a bad use of force from somebody that you or I taught indirectly, that that reflects on us. Right. So I I'd wish they would have. Um... When they talked about post and some of these other things, I just wish that it was just tough because it was when these discussions came about, everybody was angry and emotional and just nothing gets accomplished that way. If we could have just sat at the table on both sides and, and, and people stop screaming at each other and, and hating on each other, we could actually get some stuff done in, in terms of making things better. And, and I, I don't even like to call it reform, but we could have maybe changed some things in policing, but it was just so fast and so, we have to get this done right away. And it just kind of got, got rolled out and, 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 you know, a lot of this stuff really didn't get talked about. So I think, I wish we could just take two steps back. I think we could take two, I wish we could take two steps back and, you know, and people stop being so mad and emotional on one end. And then police officers understand that we do a good job, but we can always be better and be more professional. And we, we kind of come to some common ground and it just, I did think that a lot of people feel like that didn't happen. It was just so fast. And we have to get this out right away. And you're looking at, you're looking at Massachusetts. We don't have any, you have to knock on wood. I don't want to jinx anybody, but we don't have those. We don't have those national events up here in Massachusetts. We're not having train wrecks up here of use of force. And I think that the officers of Massachusetts were like, well, why are we getting, why are we getting our, you know, our heads caved in on this bill when, when we're not creating case law in Massachusetts, we're doing a decent job. You know, again, we can be better, but we were doing a pretty decent job here. I couldn't agree more. Uh, a few episodes back, I had um, Chief Jason Armstrong from Ferguson on, and he, he was talking about, I mean, you want to talk about a difficult job. Try being yes, the chief of Ferguson after that, the, the Michael Brown, the old hands up, don't shoot incident happened back in 2014. So he was telling me that, yes, a good amount of, of, of what's going on here is definitely training, but he also feels like there's also some luck to it too. And, and I agree with that. If you catch the wrong person on the wrong day, we're human beings that do this job. We can make a mistake just like anybody else. So Ian from Ian's watching from Australia. He says, great conversation. They have the same issues there. Yeah, my brother. Ian, welcome. I don't know what time it is in Australia, but we're happy to have you on the show. Um, thank you for, for tuning in and please spread the word. So we're here again. If you're just tuning in, this is D Difficult Conversations by Supply of the Why. We're here with Chuck Dechara, and we're talking about the police reform bill. Uh, a problem I have, I'm going to get right into this. You and I spoke about this. Banned, the wholesale banning of chokeholds. I have an issue with this, and here's why. Chokeholds, to me, should be restricted, but not banned. And they should be restricted for serious bodily harm or death-type situations. <laughs> Nobody... Not nobody. It is. It, it would be a hard sell for somebody to tell me that it's okay for me to shoot somebody, ram somebody with a cruiser, stab them, put a pen in their eye, any of that stuff. That's all good to go, but I can't put a chokehold on somebody. 
So I'll give you an example of an, of a time where a chokehold might might be applicable. If I am wrestling with somebody, and they are, you know, we we are where it's a hands on close quarters combat type situation, I might not feel comfortable introducing my firearm in that situation because if it's somebody who's really giving me a run for my money, I know you can't tell. I'm a fairly large guy. I'm 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 six one and I'm two hundred plus pounds. We'll leave it at plus. Very plus pounds. Two twenty. Yeah, plus. And if I'm wrestling with somebody, if I'm wrestling with myself, the evil version of myself, if I introduce a firearm, now it's a 50-50 for control over that firearm. So it could get taken from me. Or what if I go to, it's, you know, I feel like, you know, this person's trying to stab me or whatever, and I go to fire at them and they smack my gun at the last minute. Now I have no idea where, that's bullet, where that bullet goes. Because Chuck, you're a firearms guy too. So one of the core tenets of firearms is be sure of your target and what is beyond it. Right, you're responsible for where that bullet goes. So you know, I don't think people are thinking about that as well. Like a chokehold, to me, I don't. I, you know, it's it's one of those things that could end a lot of situations quickly without putting everybody in danger. Because if it's properly applied, it doesn't kill people; it just puts it out. Chuck, do you have any feelings about that? Yeah. So I I wish I wish it would have just kind of got got uh, probably left alone because in in Massachusetts there's been zero cases. You know, knock on wood again of a of of a, of a chokehold, you know, causing somebody death or seriously injury. But it's the way it's always been in Massachusetts was it wasn't in anybody's policy. So they they were they weren't technically banned, but they weren't taught. So we didn't teach LVNI lateral vascular neck restraint or what you call rear naked choke. So we never taught chokes in Massachusetts. We weren't allowed to teach them. We didn't train them. We talked about them a little bit, like how to maybe get out of one, so they know the un and, and understand the difference between a blood choke and an air choke. So we talked about them a little bit, but, but nobody was ever trained to do them. However, even though it wasn't in your use of force policy, deadly force is not tool specific. So you're allowed to use deadly force as a police officer, immediate defense of life, self-defense, defense of another life in peril. Okay, so the way it always was, was deadly force is not tool specific. So if if you're in a deadly force situation, even though you're not trained that way, even though it's not you're not taught it, it still is. As long as it's objectively reasonable and appropriate, it's the same as running. A, a, it sounds crazy, but running over somebody with a police car. It sounds absurd. We don't teach it. And uh, emergency driving, we don't show somebody how to run over a sub a suspect. We don't have it in the use of force policy. But absolutely positively, could you have a scenario where you run somebody over the police car? And it's reasonable, and it could save the, the suspect's life and save innocent people's life. You know, if you if you have a scenario where you, you can't use deadly force and you have to use your police car, we don't advocate running somebody over, but it, if it's reasonable, it's reasonable. So now that's the problem with the banning chokes. Well, they're, yeah, they're banned, but the law still is the law. So this is where there's confusion. I've gotten seven phone calls prior to the show tonight where people have differences of opinion on what banning chokes means. Does banning mean we don't teach them and we don't train them? But are they still are they still okay to do if your life is in peril? Because you know there's there's a scenario. So I'm gonna just if I could just talk about the case. I won't say what department. It's not a Massachusetts department. Please, please. They had, please. An, officer, they had an officer go to use of force board. So this agency doesn't allow chokes. Uh, they're banned. They don't teach them. So this officer went to arrest a violent suspect, took him to the ground, and the suspect, you know, started to pull a gun out of the waistband. And the officer knew he was his life was in peril. He didn't want to take out his firearm and shoot him and shoot him in a, with a contact shot. So instead, he figures because I'm I'm on the sub, subject's back, he sinks in a choke and puts him out. Doesn't kill him. He just not he renders him unconscious and takes him into custody. So he actually used less force than he's justified to use. So you look at it and you go, is is he is he going to get fired for department policy and procedure because chokes are banned? However, is what he did under the law, under Graham versus Connor, is what he did objectively reasonable? And I think anybody in any line of work would tell you what the officer did was reasonable and appropriate due to that, that set of facts and circumstances presented to him. So that's where the confusion comes into play. What does banned mean? Does it mean you can't save your life? Like, I mean, you have, you have a right, you're, as a police officer, you're still a human being. You have a right to defend your life if it's in peril. So it's... uh. It, it, it's, it, it's, a, it's a very confusing part of the bill. I get why that they don't want them taught, but uh, to, to ban them is, is just, it's like, again, it's kind of situation driven, terrain driven. hundred percent. You know, it's, it's a tool off the table. It is no different, no different than if someone attacked you un, unexpectedly and you grabbed, uh, you just instinctively picked up a lamp and smacked somebody in the head with a lamp, just instinctively. 
You know, it's 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 no it's no different. You know, Chuck, you said it beautifully. We're human beings, and at the end of the day, we have a right to defend ourselves so we can make it home to our families because that is the the golden rule of policing. All right. So, yeah, the, you know, the person that's putting out California, the definition of de-escalation. So I've been stealing a lot from California because they went through this stuff 10 years ago with the police reform, and they're, they're still out there doing the job and doing the super professional police department. But I've I've actually stole that definition. So we're still working on adding some of the definitions to this bill and trying to, uh, at the training council, us trying to have a say in some of the language. So I did steal that definition of de-escalation. It's excellent because that's what it is, using the process, strategies, techniques intended to decrease the intensity of a situation, as well as mitigate the need to use a high level of force. So we're uh, we're still a little bit from the West Coast from, the, from those guys out there. Well, thank you. That's uh, from Dr. Obed Magni, who is one of the nation's leaders in evidence-based policing. Um, and he's also a frequent guest on the show. So Obed, okay. thank you for that. Thank you, sir. All right. So from there, since agreed, in the haste to come up with reform, the legislature didn't clarify a lot in that bill. Maybe having police officers like Chuck involved could have resulted in something that police in the community could get behind. All right, so there's a nice little attaboy for you there, Chuck. Thank you, Dan. I don't got I don't got the juice to get on that. I tried. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just a patrolman. So, so we have Ron that says Ron says a doctor almost killed my father because of a bad diagnosis. Do I think all doctors are bad and civilians should oversee all doctors? No. All right. Good, good, good point, Ron. You know, it seems to be for some reason, maybe because we are, uh, we're really the most accessible arm of the government police officers. So maybe right. it's not hold that old adage about low hanging fruit. Maybe just because we're so accessible that we seem to be, uh, the, the portion of society that everybody's focusing on because we are accessible. Um, if you call us, we have to come. If you call a police station, somebody has got to pick up a phone. Like you can always access the police and we all know that sometimes that the people that get lashed out the most are the people that you have the most access to. So um, so maybe there's something like that in there. So Melissa says, we can't change them, but we can change us in order to be leaders in the path forward. So she asked a little while back in the chat, in the chat, the chat blew up so much, I, I, I lost the comment, but she asked, how do we address the us versus them mentality? So... I definitely want in on this, but I'll let you go first. Go ahead. Oh, me? Yep, go ahead. You struck me with the hard one. <laughs> yeah, you take the ground balls. Um, <laughs> you know, I, honestly, I kind of, I, I agree. And, I, and I've met Melissa. I actually served with Melissa on a, uh, a use of force commission for the city of New Bedford. And uh, me and her come from very diverse backgrounds. And, uh, you know, I made it, I think I made a lifetime friend with her. We, we actually were able to get a lot accomplished, but it, it really is just, uh, it it's to get rid of that confrontational from, from both sides. So I think that, uh, I think that for police where we can be better at, honestly, is I think that right now we're into this, like, but you feel like the world's against you and it's not true. So I think I tell you, to the police officers out there or anybody in law enforcement, like you got to understand that most people like respect what you do. The, it's a, it's a still a good profession and a well-respected um, profession. And I think if you, I think if we put that in our mind that most people need us and most people respect us, then I think it'll, it'll help get away from that chip that everybody's against us. And you can maybe sit at the table and, you know, the us versus M we, re I think, I think that we probably should have done is not try to figure any of this out 10 months ago. What we should have done is let the dust settle. And maybe we, we tried making all these decisions where emotions were super high. And I think we needed to like everybody just step back from the table and decompress and then figure out what, okay, this is what's broken. This is what we can fix. This is what we can't fix. And, and try to just have honest conversations. And truthfully, some, stuff like this show is good. Stuff like the new Bedford um, um, Police Use Force Commission was good. Um, I had met with some students of uh, Bentley College back a year ago from African-American studies and just sat down and, and, and had pizza and got to know them. And, and I, it was an eye-opener for me. I learned a lot because a lot of those kids were coming to Boston and I, and I didn't even think my, I had my, I had my city of Waltham tunnel vision on thinking that, oh, these, these are kids from here. And a lot of those people just by talking to them in a, in a good setting was, you know, they came from different parts of the country and they had different experiences with the police. And they were told that Boston is a racist city and their parents told them to be careful. So, you know, when, when you pull over a car at two in the morning, you might be pulling over a kid that's legitimately a petrified of the police and his actions might be different. So it was, it was kind of an eye opener for me. And I think maybe just everybody taking a, breath and decompressing and then we can 
try to get rid of, get better at some of this us first them. There's still going to be the loud people and we're still going to have loud people on one side. We're still going to have a couple bad cops on the other. And I think we just have to say that the majority of, of people want things to get better. Well, Chuck, I got to jump in on this. All right. So definitely not, not avoiding this. This, this, this question is right. Ah, in the house, actually, that's a few. So that's the whole premise of supply of the Y folks. So for those of you that are, that are new to this and you haven't been following this from the beginning, Supply the Y started when a group of young adults from, from my town that I had built a relation with a relationship with through when I was a school resource officer, now they are young adults. They felt enough of a relationship with me to reach out to me and say, hey, we want to talk about what happened to George Floyd. We want to talk about what happened, you know, the inequities. And I said, great, let's get together. Let's do a Zoom call. Well, that call, I just happened to put something on Facebook about it and said, hey, I just had this amazing conversation with a group of of young, young adults that I had built a relational credit score with, meaning that I had already established a foundation of trust with these people before any of this happened. And because of that, they were willing to sit down with me and, and ask me questions. And, and sometimes they gave me answers that they were expecting. And sometimes I said things that they maybe didn't want to hear, but they needed to hear. So that's the first thing that needs to happen. So supply the why, like, like Chuck said, that's the whole point of this is to get people here so we can discuss this stuff without any yelling, without any disrespect, without attacking people, and most importantly, without emotion. All right, we're going to address these with facts, and we're going to have an exchange of information. Second thing that we need to do, education. Everybody wants to talk about how police officers need more training. Well, here's the deal. The public needs more training too. So if you really want to learn more about this, Every department, at least before COVID, most departments had some sort of maybe like a citizen's police academy, right? You, I strongly recommend that. I know in my jurisdiction, not tooting our horn, but we do a phenomenal citizen's police academy. So get involved in that as well. And the third thing is there from there is get to know some of your local police officers. Have a conversation with people. The only time a lot of people talk to police officers is, is during one of the worst events of their lives, and they call us. It doesn't need to be that way. All right, if I'm standing in line waiting for a sandwich, say hello. I'll say hello back. You want to talk a little bit? We can talk a little bit. Like that's how it starts. We'll start, you know, communicate, have education, and just and just understand the fact that underneath that uniform, that there's a person there. And if we can do that, that will will solve a lot of the problems from there. So um definitely a great question. That's one of my favorite questions, and I'm glad I'm glad somebody asked that. So, Chuck, we're down to about seven and a half minutes. Like I promised you before, like the time is going to fly by. So is there anything that we missed that you want to touch upon? Well, I think I, I you know, I've tried to listen to what people's concerns are like yourself and, and sit down and, and have the conversation. And I would say overall that the two biggest things I see that people have that, you know, why they, this, they need this police reform is people, people want, um, they want accountability, right? They want accountability from the police department and they want transparency from the police department. So I think, uh, you know, I think we, his, historically we maybe could have been better with educating the public and telling why we do what we do uh, with this stuff, with body cameras and stuff and press conferences. I, I think that, you know, you get, you get ahead of it now, rather than we put the walls up and, and wait to release information. You know, if I was chief police, which I never will be, I'm not going to take any tests. I would just come out and I would try to get ahead of these things. I would get ahead of them. Hey, here's the videotape. Uh, you can't always do that for sure, but I think I would try to understand that people want, that's what people want from the police department. They want professionalism, they want accountability, and they want some transparency. And if we recognize that, then you know we can we can get ahead of some of these problems rather than, well, we'll get, we'll get back to in, in a month, I think. you know. So that's one thing that I kind of heard from what people want. Yeah, 100%. 100%. So Marshall has a question. He says, so if an officer is using deadly force against a suspect choking and officer will, the same political politician will say it was reasonable or justified, I think not. All right. So I think what Marshall's trying to say there is it's kind of a double-edged sword and a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. And um, I agree with that. So Coach Erica is walk, walking, watching from St. Louis. So welcome. You know, it's good to have people from the Midwest here. And uh, Erica, I love your counterpoint of view. And I love the fact that you're here because that means that you're at least willing to sit down and have a conversation 
and maybe pick something up that you didn't know before. And just like Chuck said earlier, when he traveled around the world, he learns from people uh, on different parts of the world. So we're, we're certainly excited about learning from you as well, Erica. So please, um, you know, come back and, and, uh, and keep, keep adding your comments. All right. So we're down about five minutes left. So when civilians are acting right, it's even better. When they respect authority, it's amazing. It eliminates a lot of steps that we might have to do. So that's coming from Karen. So obviously compliance is best. When people comply, it kind of takes the need for use of force uh, right off the table. All right. So I agree with that. So Chuck, king for a day. All right. You're king for a day. You are in charge of ABC Police Department. What are three things that you are going to implement to your to your rank and file so they know that, A, you have their back, and the public also knows that you have their back? Because sometimes it can seem like they're conflicting interest. So really quick, if you could tell us a little bit about that. Well, I would I honestly would put, uh, and I know that uh, views have changed over the years. With a good policy, I would put, uh, I would put body cameras out there in the public. I would put them in the offices. I think that, I think that most, uh, most use of force, false claims are, are taken care of right when you see the video. So I would put body cameras on, on the offices. I would have, uh, I would have more training. I, I, I would start with, if I could change the things at the, for the way I train my offices, I would send them to an academy for six months. Then I would have them go back to the department and work the street anywhere from three to six months and then go back to an academy to see the difference between, you know, this is how stuff, um, goes onto the street versus the classroom setting. I would do like almost like a split academy. And then I would just make sure that, uh, you know, we, we, the trainings kept up with the, the, you know, if we, if we, every year we do in-service training, we integrate what, what we need to be done. So if one year it's mental illness that comes into play with use of force. And next year we would pick, you know, additional training on officer health and wellness. Cause that mm -hmm. believe it or not comes into play with use of force. And I would, I would, I would run my police department that way. Everybody could have weekends off and holidays. <laughs> well, I can tell you right now, half of Massachusetts is filling out their uh, their transfer paperwork right now to go to uh, the, the the Chara PD, you know, to come work with you. So, Chuck, really quick, how can people contact you? I know that you gave me some information here. I'm going to go ahead and throw that up on the screen. What special projects are you working on? What's on deck? What's next for Chuck Chara? Uh, right now I'm, I'm, uh, well, this, this last past year I took over as the, uh, statewide coordinator for use of force, which is probably the worst job uh, in, in America right now. So I'm trying to, uh, I'm trying to, truthfully, I'm trying to train with my own department and, um, try to keep the training, uh, on, on ahead of the learning curve. And we're trying to revamp some stuff at the police Academy. We're trying to revamp some of the, uh, recruit officer training. We're trying to bring in the additional training that we've talked about. So right now we have on board trying to bring in um, some uh, three-day de-escalation instructor training to try to have officers like you and me and a bunch of other instructors come in and roll this de-escalation stuff across the board so we're all kind of standardized and operating on the same guidelines. And um, you know, I'm trying to I'm trying to get more involved this police reform bill. It's not done yet. It's not a finished product. There's a bunch of things coming out July 1st. So right now they're allowing us to look at some of the language and put some definitions in there. So uh, this, this police reform bill is still... Uh, taking up a lot of uh, a lot of my time and stuff, so I, I think we're uh, I think we're still going to be on this for a little while. I don't think it's a done product yet. Well, let me tell you this. First of all, thank you for taking time away from your family to come on and educate us and speak with us and just and just let everybody else know why you're so beloved in Massachusetts and why there's so many people in the chat that have so many kind things to say about you. Um, you're a man's man and you're a cop's cop, Chuck. That's about the best compliment that I think you could give anybody that has dedicated 30 plus years of their lives to a profession. Secondly, let us know at, here at Supply the Y what we can do to help further this endeavor of getting this word out there. You, you, know, you, you have an open invitation to come back whenever you want. If there's anything that you need from me to put out to people, I will certainly do that because this needs to happen where we have people that are educated, people that teach this stuff at the table helping with these decisions. So please let me know if there's anything that we can do. Um, but as far as that goes, we're almost at time. Thank you, everybody from all. We have people from different countries tuning in. We have people from different parts of the country tuning in. Supply the why. It's growing, and it's all because of all of you amazing viewers out there that are supporting us. Please like, subscribe, and share the show if you, if you thought the content was helpful or if you know somebody that it would be helpful to. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, 
LinkedIn, and YouTube. And we have podcasts available on Amazon, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. So this is just the beginning, folks. Keep coming back. Keep hitting me up with great topics that you want to hear about. And as always, come ask your questions. So good night to everybody. And uh, thanks again. And as always, remember, hashtag supply the why. Thank you, folks. Thanks for tuning in.